0: Weather satellites in space and humans on Mars. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. A new satellite will soon be able to track extreme weather from more than 20,000 miles above Earth. From hurricanes in the atmosphere to volcanoes in the ocean, the Geostationary Operational Environment Satellite, or GOES-U, will help people better understand and prepare for Earth's biggest environmental threats. We'll speak with one Lockheed Martin engineer about this new space satellite. Then, just how close are we to putting humans on Mars? From the floor of Megacon Orlando, our friends at the podcast Walk About the Galaxy hosted a discussion on the challenges and possibilities of living and working on the Red Planet. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and NASA have joined forces to launch an advanced weather satellite. This satellite is the final in a series from NOAA. GOES-U has a targeted launch date set in April of this year. The satellite will study climate data and monitor Earth's most destructive environmental phenomenon like wildfires, volcanoes, and hurricanes. Here to talk more about what this satellite is capable of is Ryan Page, an engineer with Lockheed Martin. Ryan, welcome to the show. Oh, well, thanks for inviting me. It's awesome to talk about GOES. Awesome to talk about GOES indeed, um, which is, is launching very soon. But before we get into the kind of nitty gritty about this satellite, let, let's talk about kind of its bigger purpose and really where it fits into the mission of observing our planet from above. What's its intended purpose?
1: Yeah, so uh, this one that we're going to be talking about is GOES-U, soon-to-be GOES-19, a little bit later this year when it reaches its final destination in geostationary orbit. But these are really just, in my personal opinion and uh, the opinion of our whole team, they are the world's best weather observation satellites. So this uh, particular vehicle is a seven payload vehicle carrying... A whole suite of instruments designed to better understand both earth and space weather how is it even possible that
0: you are able to get (laughs) images of the earth like this that are so crisp from from these satellites it really is mesmerizing
1: really it is the most sophisticated form of weather sensing we can we can build um you're talking about a 15 year mission life so we they actually plan life of 10 years but we build them for 15. um so they're, they're these giant hardy satellites with the best possible uh, technology equipped to them. So, we, we work as Lockheed Martin, is one of the prime contractors with a lot of best-in-class vendors to put this thing together with the best possible hardware, software, and build it just for that intent, that 10-year mission life. It is infrastructure in geostationary orbit is how we see it. So, these, these images you see are a combination of just the incredible amount of sensing that some of these payloads can do, I mean, you're talking about an advanced baseline imager, which is really the big payload on our vehicle. It's still Bale three Harris. So it's seasoned basically uh, 16 different light spectrums, two visible, uh, four near infrared and 10 infrared, and it stacks all that data together to get you those pretty pictures. You know, some of the stuff it can do between taking full t- images of the whole United States every five minutes to almost down to two minutes. Is just an incredible sensing power of that hurricane tracking, that extreme weather tracking.
0: It, it is more than just pretty pictures um, for people other than me, and and, and I'll, I'll we'll talk about that in a moment. But but you mentioned something about infrastructure and geostationary orbit. Let's talk about the orbit that the satellite is going into and why it's so important. Part
1: of the, part of the uh, the mission it goes is right. You, you're getting to geostationary orbit. That, that's a very very far way away. That's over twenty two thousand miles away. So, it is is a haul to get there with a combination of our, our launch vendor SpaceX and then the uh, liquid apogee engine on the vehicle. We get to that 22,000 miles, and um, this particular satellite goes U, will move into the goes east point of our constellation. So, we have a goes east so and a west. From that very far away vantage point, those incredible sensors on our Earth pointing platform. Can see all the way from Hawaii to the was going to be the west coast of Africa. So you're talking about a giant field of view, and the only way you get that is by getting really far away.
0: And it, it also it doesn't actually orbit the Earth, so to speak. Right, you're looking at the same spot over the,
1: the same amount of time, right? correct geostationary, right? So you basically get into a longitude and latitude at that very far distance. And our incredible work from our guidance and navigation and propulsion team has built these things with a suite of thrusters and reaction wheels so they can maintain their station, right? And their station is to travel along in this location. So you're constantly monitoring from this vantage point.
0: I've always known that geostationary orbit is far away, but 22,000 miles, that's that's pretty far when you think like the International Space Station is something like one or 200 miles up, right? I mean, that, that's pretty far away.
1: Hey, I mean, <laughs> it, i mean, Getting to that, we have multiple stages along the way, multiple burns of our liquid Apogee engine to get there. And then once you get there, it's station keeping, right? our, our vehicle houses 32 thrusters for a reason, right? You have to get there and then you can't let yourself drift away. You have to maintain your focus on your earth pointing platform and those earth sensing instruments that you're looking at at your destination.
0: For folks that are listening to us here in Florida, they're very familiar with, with GOES images, especially around hurricane season. As you mentioned, um, forecasters use them to track storms. What other, kind of weather phenomenon or or atmospheric phenomenon is this satellite and the satellite constellation able to track.
1: People in Florida, hurricane tracking is the number one, right? You can see all those I, I feel like it's improved with the advent of this technology and its slow integration into into meteorology, right? But you're talking about from us local and this the satellite was built in Colorado. We're talking about everything from snowstorm tracking to wildfire tracking. One of the amazing things we do that I like to talk about here in Colorado is When you pull up your google maps and you're going to go for a hike on the weekend you can actually see where active wildfires are because of our satellites because they're actively tracking it pumping that data into google maps so you can actually see oh my route is closed oh this area is closed because literally we're seeing a real-time fire to know that each one of these satellites pumps down about a terabyte of data a piece a day that's more data than we know what to do with right now but the goal is in five years in eight years We'll know what to do with that data and it'll help us sense more things than we can take in now.
0: Five terabytes of data being beamed down from twenty-two thousand <laughs> miles above. That's just insane when you think about it. I mean, how how are how are you even able to communicate and and get that much data back from a satellite that is so far away from us?
1: When I talk about this being a space infrastructure, that's what NASA and NOAA have really built this out to be. So this downlink system they have based out in NESDIS in Maryland is very sophisticated. They're always in communication um, with these with these s- satellites, right? So we have a suite of antennas that help with that uplink downlink, that constant share of information. So th- they've just built this sophisticated infrastructure that has really allowed them to maximize the data
0: Downlink from these. So, you talked about um, hurricane and weather forecasting, monitoring like wildfires in almost real time. I'm also reading that this is able to even identify volcanic eruptions, even ones that happen underneath the ocean floor. I mean, <laughs>
1: that's just incredible. So, a couple of different points of track in there, right? It, it can actually see the changes in light. From the different light spectrums and then it can also track the volcanic ash as it slowly comes through this to the surface so ab- absolutely unbelievable my other fan- fun fact was like a theory i was i'm fortunate enough to be with this program since gozar was launched um so they always had speculation that could do this but they launched gozar in 2016 and then sure enough uh, they could see boat wides. so you can see actually asteroids entering Earth's atmosphere. So you can actually track meteors with this too. So, so these are multiple kind of sensors and instruments that are that are on the satellite that
0: that's doing this. How how big is the satellite itself, and and where do these kind of instruments
1: fit onto it? We like to say it's kind of about the size of a bus, roughly. So it's going to be jishai of uh, a dry weight. Of uh, just shy of 6,500 pounds. When we fly it, it's going to be just shy of 12,000 pounds. So it's about half fuel. So it's it's a big thing. It's a school bus, right? Uh, This particular vehicle has seven instruments. The previous three vehicles have had six. The main payloads are really our earth-pointing platform that's going to house our advanced baseline imagery. I talked about that before that has our our basically the world's greatest DSLR. Um, Its it's partner on our earth-pointing platform is our geostationary lightning mapper uh, that's built by Lockheed Martin uh, what's really special about that is Gozar is the first suite to actually have geostationary ones so they can actually, you know, map on the coastline and watch historical trends of lightning, right? Uh, it also is really nice because lightning's a really good indicator of storm uh, intensification, right? So when you see hurricanes or tropical storms rising in categories, you actually see increased output of lightning. So it actually better helps predict when storms are evolving and downgrading. That's really on earth Platform. The backside of GOES, which doesn't get as much publicity because um, obviously we care about Earth's weather, is our space weather suite. So on our solar array, we actually have an articulating platform that points towards the sun, and GOES You houses three payloads. So it's going to be our uh, solar ultraviolet imager, which looks at the sun and ultraviolet light conditions, our AXIS, which is an extreme X ray irradiance sensor, which basically looks for coronal mass ejections, ira- solar radiance, and then New to GOES-U is our compact coronagraph C-Core, and that is really cool because it actually looks at those coronal mass ejections and kind of categorizes them. So a coronagraph is basically an artificial eclipse, right? So it puts a disc over the sun, so we can actually see what trajectory and volume those coronal mass ejections are pushing out and track them a little bit better to see how they're impacting Earth's weather and environment. And then we got even more uh, instruments on it on the backside of the satellite that actually worked to uh, monitor geostationary orbit. So like I said, a lot of infrastructure is in geostationary orbit because you can keep it in a location, but that also means we gotta see what that location does to our infrastructure. So we have a magnetometer, which basically reads the, the magnetosphere of geostationary orbit, so that electron proton exchange. And then we have a SICE, which is like an in-suite which basically is constantly reading both push and pull of intergalactic electrons and protons into uh, Earth's magnetosphere and uh, geostationary orbit. So seven instruments, a bus size vehicle. It's a really awesome satellite, man. It's so cool to work on. I I'm I just as you were
0: talking, I, I googled a picture of it, and my goodness, that thing is big.
1: <laughs> It's a massive satellite. It's it's incredible, right? So uh, fortunate enough to work on it for a number of years, and you kind of lose the scale. I've been able to go work on some of the deep space missions, uh, and go look at some of those those vehicles. They're incredible. But the, the craziest thing is they're the size of a dishwasher. And you walk mm-hmm. back, and I and I'm working on this vehicle that one of the payloads is the size of a dishwasher. It's it's mm-hmm. a it's a it's a piece of infrastructure. We build them and test them very rigorously, right? It's not lost on our our team or on the customer about what the goal is, right? The goal is this this incredibly valuable piece of technology that is supposed to help US citizens and save lives for 10 years. Mm. And we build it that way. And we test it very hard. And we put those instruments through its paces. That's what we're doing now down in Florida. Before we launch it, we got to make sure before this thing flies up there, that we've Crossed all the T's and dotted all the eyes.
0: And, and finally, Ryan, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because you know before we started talking, you said you you traveled down here to Florida with the vehicle. It, it's preparing for flight. Um, when does it launch? Um, how is it getting to space? And, and and what can we expect in in the time leading up to to T minus zero on on this satellite?
1: So we do have a launch date, April 30th. Uh, that's going to be with our our contracted vendor, SpaceX. So working with them uh, pretty thoroughly. But obviously, that's a couple months from now. So, what do we do, right? We've already shipped it to Florida. I kind of spoke with that earlier. I was fortunate enough to fly with the vehicle on a C5, one of the coolest experiences I've ever had. So, we get it in Florida. We get in a safe uh, clean room for rent called AstroTech. And what we do is checkouts, right? We we have built it, we have tested it. Now it's time to do one last stamp of approval before we get into orbit. So, that includes um, final v- instrument testing, final um, launch orbit raising uh, preparedness, then final thermal insulation. Then we do our propulsion system checkout. I mentioned earlier, 32 thrusters. That involves a lot, a lot of propulsion. So we validate that system one more time. Um, we do our fueling and then we move into encapsulation. And then eventually we hand over the vehicle to integrate into the rocket. So it's a lot of small steps, with but they're big, big milestones, right? It's in your mission life. Make sure your instruments work. Make sure your propulsion works. Make sure your you're encapsulated correctly. Make sure you're thermally insulated. Again, geostationary orbit. You're going through everything. You can't get out there and fix it. So it has to maintain its thermal stability while it's in that orbit. So a lot of final checkouts to make sure that we meet that 10-year mission life.
0: We were speaking with Lockheed Martin's Ryan Page. Uh, Ryan cannot wait for you to get this satellite off the ground and i cannot wait to spend countless hours staring at the beautiful images that come back down to Earth. thank you so much for chatting with us ryan me
2: and you both appreciate it, Brendan. anytime still to come people go to mars we've been talking about how difficult it is to get back from mars well why not just eliminate that part of the problem how close
0: are we to stepping on the surface of mars that's ahead on are we there yet You're listening to Are We There? Yeah, I'm Brendan Byrne. Just how close are we to putting humans on Mars? That was a question posed by the hosts of the podcast Walk About the Galaxy. Earlier this month, I joined that show for a live taping from the Megacon Orlando convention floor. Here's a portion of that conversation with me and hosts Josh Caldwell,
2: Audrey Martin and Jim Cooney. Let's imagine that we are there yet, fellow Astral all Quirks. Right.
3: <laughs> We're on Mars. Let's project ourselves
2: us. forward into the future. We can go to Mars. You're each going to go to Mars. Where on this big red planet do you want to go?
0: Brendan? I would like to go to Jezero Crater.
2: Jezero Crater, oh, that's a good which, is where which is where the Perseverance rover is right now. Right now. Uh,
0: it's the only mm. location on Mars that I can memorize. Uh, <laughs> so that's where I'm going there. But it's a really, really cool spot. And scientists think that there was life there at one point, so there might be life there when I go to live on Jezero Crater. So, okay, so
2: go. you're hoping yeah. to bump into some Martians. I'm hoping to bump into some Martians.
0: Make sure there's some water, some oxygen there. Yeah, okay, yeah, that'd be, nice. That'd I be mean, nice. Where do you want to go? I
3: mean, that is a good, a good. It's location, a beautiful spot. Because even if you, even if you go there and you're like, eh, this isn't great, you know that something else is going to go there to pick up this examples. Yeah. Or you got somebody to and talk to. Percy's
0: there. Percy's yeah. there.
3: Yeah. I don't know. I think I would want to go to Olympus Mons. Okay, I just nice. like volcanoes are just really fun and that's yeah. the only reason I want to go. A,
2: it is an extinct volcano and it's like the size of Colorado.
3: It's not, yeah, it's it's the biggest. It's yeah. Yeah. The biggest.
2: Right. Jim, where are you going on Mars? I'm hanging out with Brendan. All right.
3: Aliens all the way. Okay,
2: you're going to Valles Marineris. <laughs> I'm going Marineris. fossil you're, hunting. You're, you're going to find going some shark's Jezero teeth. crater. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to what well, we've got up here on the screen, Valles Marineris, or uh, maybe one of the ice caps, one of the polar oh, ice yeah. caps. Oh, yeah, that's a kind good of spot. Do some cross-country yeah. skiing. Yeah. There you go. Something like that. Yeah. That sounds yeah. really fun. Okay, cool. Um, well, before we get to Mars, what's our journey to Mars? It's via the moon in some sense. Got to go to the moon first. We had our Artemis 1 launch about a year and a half ago, a little less than a year and a half ago. Yeah. What is going on? What is the status of our journey back to Mars, Brendan?
0: NASA's got this very ambitious plan To put humans on the moon Through the Artemis program We saw a very successful mission In Artemis 1 Artemis And that was, there was no people On board that one That was an, an empty space capsule Well there was some
3: Were there dummies? There were dummies There were some okay. mannequins there On board
0: some, Yeah some, they, We don't call them dummies or I'm not supposed to call them there dummies They were
3: smarties uh,
0: They were smarties
2: People uh, simulators
0: okay. Yes uh, And that went very well um, The next mission is Artemis 2 That will have a crew of four So three NASA astronauts And one from Canada Will be on board that one uh, but that one's going to take a little bit longer than NASA originally anticipated. It was supposed to launch at the end of this year. It's now looking towards the end of next year. That's because of a few different things happened. One, the heat shield took a little more damage than they originally anticipated on the and, Orion, on the no, Orion capsule. space caps when it came back. Because, you know, it hits the atmosphere pretty hard, pretty fast, creates a lot of friction. Mm-hmm. That heat shield there is to protect the mannequins in Artemis 1 and protect the astronauts of Artemis 2 and beyond. So they're looking into that. They also need a landing system. So, yeah, yeah there's a lot of things that need to come into place. Um,
2: Artemis 2 is fly around the moon, snap some pictures out the I'm window. Yeah. With
3: people. It's With about people. About a
2: two-week trip or so. Or... Oh, it's
3: going to take two weeks? Yeah. yeah, I think so, yeah. Whoa. Yeah.
2: Then uh, Artemis 3, what's our timetable for that? That's a little iffy. So
0: uh, that will be after... Artemis 2. What? And that's as, <laughs> <laughs> as detailed as I can oh. get. Um, okay,
2: we still should totally reverse the order of those yeah, two, because Artemis yeah. 3 is a lot more interesting. Yeah. So. Uh,
0: still need a lander for that one. SpaceX is working on that with Starship. Um, Starship will be the, the lander. Um, they still need to get that into orbit and demonstrate that they can transfer fuel back and forth before they get astronauts on the surface. Beyond that, SpaceX will have a a few lander missions, and then it is open to other companies to provide another vehicle, whether it's SpaceX or or another company that's going to provide more landers. Really, a lot has to go right in a very short amount of time, and NASA's not taking any chances. So they'd rather be safe than than sorry when it comes to putting
2: people on the moon. That's
0: definitely good.
3: So
2: Artemis 3, you're not even going to hazard a date for that one. I am not.
3: (laughs) You can be wrong. (laughs)
2: It's okay. the, the architecture for... And then, you know, there is... Nominally an Artemis four, and, and, even in and Artemis during this 5, entire
0: process, they will put a, a mini space station in a very intricate orbit around the moon that will be used as a staging ground for moon missions, but also Mars missions, which we can talk about a little bit later. But uh, all of that is happening at the same time. So there's a, there's a lot going on to get humans onto the moon, and that's only what. 250,000 miles from right. home.
3: Only.
2: <laughs> Only. That's a three-day trip instead of like an eight-month exactly. trip. Exactly. So it's a very different story. Yeah. Didn't we do this in 1969? We did do it in 1969. Why
0: is it so hard to get back? Well, that's a very good question, Jim. Uh, it's because we're going to someplace completely different. So the moon missions of the 1960s and, and early 70s were to the equatorial region of the moon. The Artemis missions mm-hmm. want to go to the South Pole region of the moon, which is... Far more difficult to physically get there, and it's also far harsher than than the equatorial regions. It's colder. There's there's we believe ice is trapped under the surface, which is and it's one very of the reasons dark,
2: why
3: we want to go One of the there. reasons we want to
2: go
0: there as well is to be able to collect that trapped water ice and use it for fuel and and uh, life support.
3: Frequently, when you
2: hear about like finding water, we talk about it all the time. Oh, they found some water on the moon. Oh, they found some water on Mars. It's like, enough already, okay, we know there's some water on both of these locations. Why is that so important? It's not because, you know, the astronauts forgot to bring a bottle of water like I forgot to bring to Megacon here. It's because, as you said, water is actually burnt rocket fuel that with some electricity you can unburn, Mm -hmm. decompose it into hydrogen and oxygen, the hydrogen is rocket fuel, mm-hmm. you burn it with oxygen, you reproduce that water and you get uh, rocket thrust. Is this a reason why the moon is potentially part of the trip back to Mars?
0: It is. And it, it's to cr- establish a solar system gas station, essentially, right? So you're able to make this fuel, make these supplies that you need because it's very difficult and expensive to get mass into orbit and off this planet. So if you can make your fuel on the way to mars then that is a really cost-saving and mass-saving feature of of your architecture so that's
2: exactly why nasa is interested in water on the moon but also in the 60s we were like in this mad dash race it's all politics go plant the flag is there any of that going on now and is there also like the issue of we want to have a little bit more of a sustainable infrastructure?
0: There is. And we recently heard from congressional leaders that there is a concern that we are in another space race with another country, and that's Ooh. China. Oh. Um, China has a, a very ambitious plan to land humans on the moon. They're landing robotic landers on the moon. They've got a, a space station that has a crew on it that's consistently crewed now. Um, and congressional leaders grilled NASA and asked them, you know, is China going to be a new adversary? So there is this kind of geopolitical space race happening once again, uh, and there are concerns from our politicians that China will misuse the moon. So that's why they want to get there first.
3: Why does it have to be a race, though? That's how you
0: get money. <laughs> that's yeah. how you okay. get congressional money. <laughs>
3: okay, fair okay. Yeah, enough. That's how you get
0: funding. Yeah.
2: Um, and they are also focusing on the South Polar region for they the are. same reasons yes. that yeah. NASA is. The number of missions just to get like a briefcase worth of samples back from Mars is kind of astonishing. Like Perseverance is doing, okay, I've collected some samples. Mm -hmm. Then nominally there's an Earth return orbiter mission that gets launched. Then there's two more missions that need to be launched to get something down to the surface they can get something up to Martian orbit that then can transfer something to bring it back to the Earth. There's a you know, we don't send stuff to Mars every day. This is no. like multiple launches just to get a briefcase. And we've never sent anything back from Mars.
0: Right, and, exactly. Right. And I think
3: I think it's really cool, too, because Perseverance is a NASA mission, but NASA is asking other space agencies around the world for help. For collaboration. And so ESA, the, Ur- the European Space Agency, has, I think, agreed to help. And I think now JAXA might be involved in this in some Japanese way. Space yeah, the Japanese Space Agency. And there's more and more space agencies that are kind of popping up uh, around the world. So maybe they'll help out, too. So it might be like a nice... Global healing kind of moment. Yeah.
0: It's also because it's really expensive.
3: Well, that too, but also it's like tens of billions and of dollars. Friendship.
0: Yeah, yeah, but it's expensive. We need no, to share okay. the cost.
2: Well, I mean, that but too. I think what Audrey is pointing out correctly is that there are some ancillary benefits, yes. non-scientific benefits, to everybody coming together yeah. in a to, in, to do something that is mo- too challenging for any yeah. one entity, even NASA, uh, to do on their own. We're talking about, when will we walk on Mars? You know, it, there have been a couple of like projects for sending people to Mars permanently. Like there was this Mars One, was Mars that what one? it was yeah. called? Yeah. Actually, did you know one of my graduate students was one of the 100 finalists really? for the Mars One really? project? Yeah, so that obviously isn't happening. But that idea was, people go to Mars, we've been talking about how difficult it is to get back from Mars. Well, why not just eliminate that part of the problem? Okay, so you send them to Mars, keep resupplying them with food and water, and you know, new movies or whatever to keep them entertained. Mm-hmm. Uh, live on Mars, but like, I don't know. Do you want to move to Mars, no. Jim? No,
3: no, okay. no, no.
2: You can't go fishing there. No, you leave everybody forever. Your kids, your wife. You can't
0: your go wife. breathing
2: there, like. Right. Yeah, but yeah, why exactly. do you not want to go to mars <laughs> what you said you leave everybody forever and i said yeah but why oh, do you right. not want to go to right, mars? right right i am a- uh, anti-social and that would be kind of cool <laughs> but no
0: yeah it just seems claustrophobic
2: kind of there's not a lot to do way. the dining options are very limited yeah uh, yeah i don't think uber goes there there's no they don't not have yeah. yeah so yeah. so you want to get back that's a huge problem we talked about how difficult it is to get off the earth it's easier to get off the moon Mars is in between. On Mars, you weigh about three-eighths what you weigh on the Earth, so it's not as bad a situation, but it is challenging. Also, there's an atmosphere the sort of like just enough atmosphere to get you into trouble. you got to be careful about it with the friction coming yeah. in, but it's so thin you can't really use it to stop yourself like we do on Earth. Well, you can use
3: uh, parachutes, which but is nice. But not only. Well, yeah,
2: okay. yeah.
0: So
3: okay. Maybe before
2: we do the trivia answers, we should just say, what year do you think we'll land on Mars with people? Okay. Go. 2064. Oh, my God. I'm definitely going to be dead by then. 2053.
3: Uh, 20, I, 2050.
2: That's very optimistic. Thank
3: yeah, you. Yeah, I'm, I'm
0: the cynical journalist. I'll say 2080.
2: 2080. Yeah. Right. Oh. Okay. <laughs> I think
0: I could
3: survive yeah. that long.
2: Yeah. Do we have, we may have some people in the audience who will make it to 2080. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'll definitely be around in 2080 yeah. for yeah. <laughs> sure. I know All you right. will too, Brendan. Jim, not so much. Not so much. Yeah. He'll um, be on Mars.
0: <laughs> okay. That was a portion of the Walk About the Galaxy podcast taping live from Megacon 2024 in Orlando earlier this month. You can hear our full conversation by checking out the Walk About the Galaxy podcast wherever you get this podcast. Special thanks to Chuck Lindsay for producing that conversation and Megacon Orlando for the invitation. Well that's gonna do it for this week's show. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed so you never miss an episode. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's going to do it for this week's show. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to this show's podcast feed so you never miss an episode. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. we got more space coverage online, visit wmfe.org/slash space. Are We There Yet? is a production of 90.7 WMFE News. Our producer is Marion Summerall. Our intern is Emily Ching. Editorial guidance comes from Latoya Dennis. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.